welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, what's up? Knock On Podcast number 241 live from salt lake i feel like i'm at home right now with a bunch of teenage kids everyone's getting their getting their cell phones going what are you texting barklow do you i'm updating my instagram oh barklow's updating his photo on instagram any of you who know john barklow right here from sitka um unbelievable background if you don't know jb he uh, trained a lot of the extreme weather stuff up in Kodiak for a long, long time. Evan Hafer is the founder of Black Rifle Coffee. I'm Andy Stumpf. Uh, this is Evan Hafer, the CEO of Black Rifle next to me. <laughs> it's much more attractive. Andy Stumpf is uh, a crazy guy in a wingsuit. Mine doesn't work. It's perfect. That, yeah, exactly. We did that on purpose. Yours does not work. But... Uh, no, we thought it'd be fun to come up here and do a live podcast. The four of us are always uh, screwing around, messing works. with each other. And what do you guys think? Is this course unreal or what? Evan, how'd you? Let's actually let's start there. How did your first few days go, Evan? Uh, it, was, it was about what I expected. Uh, I didn't shoot very well, um, and I blamed it all on the gear. So I think most of the time, I think that's solid. When, when you miss, the first thing you should do is blame your rangefinder, right? That's first. I did, I did that. You have to go into damage control mode. It's my rangefinder. It's the sight. It's definitely not the fact that I haven't been practicing. Yep. Uh, definitely not that. But I, I, I didn't shoot very well. Well, um, you did get your bow. I, I made him a new bow. I sent it to him. I got there. Uh, UPS next day air. That was supposed to be on a Thursday delivery, ended up being the following Monday, which was one day before we came up here to set up. Which was not the greatest time to try to, to get a bunch of things done because we had our event down there. Uh, but yeah, it did. It, it kind of threw a wrench in getting everything zeroed, dialed in. So, But the course itself, from my perspective, um, one, this is a beautiful place. I shot the one down in San Antonio. I shot down there uh, a few months ago. Uh, great courses, fantastic people, I and mean, the community is amazing. But this is incredible when you can shoot the best. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. So I mean, part of this, just being out here in the mountains, being able to breathe fresh air at altitude, look across some of these ridge lines, uh, and then have fun, right, with the guys that you're with. Yeah, we had such a great group. I mean, th we were laughing fifty percent of the time, and then or at least 50% of the time, and you're going into your shot, and you're like, well, I'll, I'll do the best I can, but this is super fun either way. And make fun of yourselves when you do mess up. Like, And I learned a lot, too. There's a lot throughout that entire iteration, because when you're shooting with people that are better and they have more experience, you can ask questions, you can see what they're doing, and your, your learning curve, both uh, Carter and I were both talking about it, learning curve is just exponential here, so if you could shoot this several iterations in a row with more experienced shooters, it's it's crazy how much you can learn. 
and you're having fun learning through repetition while shooting in the environment that you more than likely will be working in. Yeah, all the the, the elements to this shoot and hats off to everyone at Total Archery Challenge for the organization of this because this is a massive machine. But uh, what's awesome about this shoot is people's ability to shoot ranges that are very technical, to make them as technical as you want or, you know, make them still easy enough for you to, to feel comfortable. But I just really like the fact that it's not for score, and I like the fact that people are able to, to communicate and to range the targets, talk about what they shot it for, um, talk about why they made mistakes. Because for me, events like this are just – these are training tools. And training is only as good as being able to review that about it. You know, I think a lot of people that progress a lot, they take a lot of notes. Uh, we have a good friend of all of ours, Brian Chantosh. He's literally documenting notes the whole time. Every time he made a mistake, he documented notes. And he came to me this morning and he said, man, I started looking through all those notes. And he's like, I don't even know where to start. I'm like, you just got to start with one. Start with one, figure out why you made a mistake, you know, make that little change and then move on. But this is a perfect format because of that. And also there's not a huge emphasis on the scoring rings because people aren't scoring. People... People are saying, you know, that was a that that'd be a perfect long shot, that'd be a perfect hard shot, because a lot of times the scoring rings really aren't where they would need to be based on the angle, right? Um, you know, or based based on the angle of the animal itself. So I think it's really cool that people can get out here and just enjoy uh, experiencing real hunting type situations. Barklow. What would you do different after yesterday? Seriously, you're going to make me? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I, I just had to drink enough tequila last night to get over it. But um, <laughs> No, so I, I am the opposite of Evan. Um, I always blame the shooter first and never the gear. And uh, that cost me a couple arrows. But I, I made a classic mistake, and uh, I learned. But I think it's one worth passing on. And I got a new rangefinder, and I'd use a rangefinder to build my tape. But in the process, I had not shot any extreme up or down angles. Yep. And what I was realizing, because as you know, I like to shoot first most of the time. Not all the time. Thank yep. you for um, clarifying. Yeah, yeah. So I like to shoot first, so I'm going up there, I'm ranging a target. And what come to find out, anything over about a 10 or 12 degree angle, um, I was anywhere from three to seven yards off on the range compared to everyone else. And so the first target I whiffed, um, which I rarely do, I'll hit it somewhere, um, I was like, well, it's got to be me. And then the second time I whiffed, um, I still thought it was me. And the third time I was getting ready to probably whiff, I said, what, what do you guys have for a range? And I realized that the range finder I had was not adequate for s steep up and down cuts. So, you know, not using the gear into the exact kind of environment that you would in a hunting situation. And I would have got there probably um, going to a ski area and, and shooting that later. Um, but I learned and it only cost me two arrows. It didn't cost me a, you know, big buck or bull. So, yeah, it was, it was humbling. They always are. And it just makes me realize I got to shoot more and practice more. Andy, what'd you get out of it? Sore legs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that was, I mean, <clears throat> full disclosure, I haven't been practicing as much as I probably should have. And I actually, it might have helped because I just stood in the box and I didn't really care too much. I was just trying to enjoy being up here. And the shots went pretty well. I took all the pressure off myself because the expectations couldn't have been lower. And it worked out in my favor. <laughs> you, you know, there was something you said when, when you met up with our group. And I was, you know, quite frankly, my confidence was a little dinged. I came in super confident, but you, you whiff a couple shots and it starts to get into your head a little bit. Oh, yeah. And you said something, and you always do this because you have so much knowledge, you don't necessarily know when you drop a bomb, but somebody asked you something about your follow-through and you're like, I, or no, they asked you about your front end and you, you said, I only concentrate on my back end. Because if I concentrate on, and you can you know elaborate, but yep. and I was like, yes, that is a fundamental thing I got to concentrate on. And I finished super strong the end of the course just thinking about the back end of the shot. Yeah, so what I meant by that is um, whenever you straddle a shooting line or, you know, if you step up and you step up to one of these cones to make your shot, once I set my sight, identify the target, um, identify point of impact that I want, at that point I check my sight again and start to prep for my shooting process and I'll take one last confirmation of really what it is that I'm going to try to stare at or where I'd like that arrow to go. And then from that moment on, once I look down at my feet to check my stance and my foot position, once my bow grip is established and my, and my arm is starting to raise up, um, my attention span essentially follows my release hand. You know, I, I go from being attentive to pointing my bow at the target and looking, you know, looking at my feet. But once I draw that back, my attention comes back with the release hand and I'm really only focusing on what's from the center line of my body back, not what's happening from the center line forward. And, you know, I really try to focus on the process of my shot routine and the shot execution. And one of the targets that I set up out there was the target that I nicknamed the horny goat weed. That was the, uh, the, the little miniature goat that I put the buck horns on. And I had the, the cone was originally set up on a stump. You guys remember. And um, the reason I did that was because you had to stand on this stump to be able to shoot over the grass. And by standing on the stump, you're, your, your footing was poor, and the ability to, to hold your bow steady it was non-existent. You know, if, if there's anyone that pulled back and held like a rock on that target, I'd like to meet you. I did it. Uh, okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, the amount of people that stood up there, they're like, yeah, I'll try it. And I'm like, all you got to do, I said, your pin's going to be moving all over the place. I said, just focus on having that shot execution in the same type of cadence, like the same type of speed. Um, because what happens is a lot of people start to focus on just trying to be still with the pin and they just get real static. They get stale and they end up just kind of freezing and then just decide, okay, I've been in this position too long. I'm just going to force this shot, punch the trigger, make it happen. But with the people that I was able to be there with and, I, and just tell them like, Hey, just so you know, my pin is going from tree to goat to tree to goat to horns to grass to rock. 
I'm just like staring a hole into the kill ring of that that goat and just trying to pull and almost almost commit more to that shot happening even faster than if I was in a completely steady position. And the amount of people that I shot with that were able to make, you know, make shots and have good impacts because they didn't let the front pin psych them out. Um, it was critical. And when people get into a slump of any kind, and this even goes for the highest of level professionals that I work with, I always just go back to that exact same thing of, listen, you have to execute from right here back. If you do that and you do it well, 90% of the other stuff always takes care of itself. But when you start to fade away from the fundamentals, then it's almost unlimited the amount of mistakes that you can make because you're just not focusing on the most important basics of shooting a bow and arrow. So there was a few other things. We shot, what, three targets yesterday together? Yeah. And, and as much maybe. as you and I have shot together and hunted together, like I've never shot a technical target course with you. So that was the first time for me as well, right? And I was so impressed with you know, getting your footing, making your situation as good as you can. But you said a couple things that, you know, I definitely feel are worth repeating. And one of those is, you know, every target you had kind of set up to, to teach something different. But when you talked about leaning the bow into the hill and that, you know, it, that would naturally level it up. Because, you know, a lot of people, if you're not concentrating on your bubble, you're, you're pushing them left and right. And Brent was until we concentrated on that. But, but those little tips that, that you shared yesterday, I think, are, were so critical and one that I will definitely remember because I was struggling sometimes as well. I knew I needed my bubble level, but I felt like I was really applying a lot of torque because when I came and settled into full draw, it wasn't anywhere remotely where it needed to be. Yeah, your top limb was buried downhill. Obviously, gravity's, gravity's a son of a gun no matter what. So once you made, did you start to focus on that later? Was it just My, a million Well, we only had a couple targets left, but absolutely I did. Yeah. Much easier? Oh, yeah. And yeah. you don't, and very you know, little effort. Yep. Yeah. What was the other one? You said there was a few things. Uh, so there was that, that you were so, you know, kind of your school of knock thing that you start with your footing. You were so um, concentrated on, you know, making your foot position as good as you could, even if it was, you know, you kicked into the side hill, you brought some dirt in, you tried to stand as level as possible. You know, you made your, your stance as good as you could before you shot. And, uh, you know, I thought that was another kind of critical component as opposed to just taking what Mother Nature gave you. You tried to make the best of the situation. Yep. Evan, you got anything to add? Yeah, I think, you know, to add what Barco was saying is when, uh, when you're telling the, the story about you being called the excavator or the excavator where, <laughs> yeah. you know, you would bring an e-tool out with you and literally cut into the side of the mountain, make everything level, because I hadn't really thought about how significant the footing was. Now, I've I've thought about it because I know when bad footing can directly contributes to, you know, bad shots basically, yep. but not the way that you were doing it, not the the emphasis that you had on it and how important it was. So that sunk in to the point where the following target, you made the other, you made the statement. It was like, man, I love seeing people take information. Yeah, on you, because you, uh, you took your low top shoes and started digging in because you were leading off first. And I'm That's like, right. 
I love the fact that I only had to say that one time and someone actually put it to use because is it the same with shooting firearms? I mean, if you guys did competition firearms and they put in real poor footing, is that something that's common or are you guys mainly shooting courses where the f you don't even have to think about that toes up toes down one foot higher than the other i mean how much would that change your ability to aim andy would be better at that because he's a long distance guy i'm shorter distance speed for accuracy type guy multiple rounds so you can add to that i think it's more the difference in that world is you're laying down for you know the long distance and you want to get your obviously you want to get your barrel or your optics vertical yeah so to that, yeah, you would you would get as level as you possibly could, but you're you know you're taking into effect this. I mean, canting your rifle a little bit isn't isn't really going right. to hurt too much. Yeah, but you just you're thinking more about the up down angles and the wind at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, is there any questions? I know there's quite a well, few people out here that I shot with. I had I had another one before okay. we moved on, which was <clears throat> when we were talking about the elevated shot sequence, and you're talking about the back wall with your mm -hmm. elevated shots and one thing that really helped me and I noticed it straight away which is you had said something you're like you're going to release early at times uh, because you're not pulling to full tension based yep. on elevation so the two big things that I took away was one your footing being flat and making you know solid footing for yourself and then two I noticed it right away the next elevated shot my tendency was okay I'm here but no, I had another, you know, what feels did, to be a you, mile. You were like, I'm, I'm in my anchor position, all's good. And you're like, yeah. you know what, I'm just going to check in. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, whoa. my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I was like, whoa, there's a lot more left to here. I got I to gotta bite a little bit more off this sandwich. Instant instant feedback, which yep. is shooting with a someone with much more experience and listening to how they're shooting the course listening to the feedback from multiple shooters. And, you know, there were 20 different pieces of that, you know, four hours that we were out there that I took, I took information. I directly applied it at the next sequence um, that I won't ever forget. So, yeah. One, one of the things that makes these shots tough is extreme uphill shots. A lot of people don't really realize that they're not truly hard on the back wall of their cam. And there's certain aspects to my shot routines and things that I teach people. Like one of the things I teach people is learning to check in, which means feel that back wall, pull a little bit harder on it and really know how aggressive am I on my wall or am I truly in my valley? And when you shoot uphill, if you get in the habit of putting your bow all the way uphill and drawing back because you're almost drawing in a completely different position of what you practice when you're shooting on flat ground. A lot of times you don't fully extend the draw length to the, to the max of the bow. And that's why I'm a big advocate of trying to draw level, check in hard on the wall, hinge at the waist to acquire the target. And I, I check in again. What happens when you don't do that is you'll start to creep forward. Now with compound bows, a lot of times if you creep forward a little bit on that back wall, at a closer range for me personally, a lot of times I'll miss high just because as you're creeping forward, you're kind of changing that knock, that knock position. And I'll, I'll hit high um, at the shorter distances. 
But the reality is on these longer shots, like here, you have to remember on most compound bows, one inch of draw length is equal to about eight to 10 feet per second for speed. So if you're shooting a 31 inch draw length, like I am here, but I'm really not super hard on the back wall and maybe I'm actually only pulling my bow to about 30 and a quarter inches, which is kind of where it can be before the bow is trying to take it away from me, but I'm still sitting in what's called the valley. Um, you know, if you factor in, well, that's seven feet per second less because I'm not fully all the way on the back wall. So if I'm not um, shooting the same speed as what I've sighted in my bow at 100 yards, you know, one of the shots out there was that steep incline uh, just over 60. You know, if you're shooting seven feet per second less at 60 yards, there was several people shooting under, like hitting the rocks under the target, and they're like, wow, I, I felt like that shot was good. And I'm thinking, I bet, I bet they were just not on the wall. And you can see it as the longer they hold, that arrow just starts moving forward and forward and forward on the rest. And then finally they shoot and they've lost all the stored energy that's on the, I shouldn't say all, but they've definitely lost the max ability of that stored energy. If anyone has any so, questions, um, there's a... There's a live mic right there. So in the to middle. kind of dovetail onto what Evan was saying, and you're Walk talking on over about, and grab it. Um, you know, obviously I'm a I'm a silverback shooter, have been for a long time, and and the couple folks that were shooting silverbacks, what I was there was a lot. I want to say that there's two right there. Yeah, because I was so impressed with uh, how many silverback shooters I saw saw out there, and I watched her make some awesome shots with. With their silverback, and actually that that couple right there has a really cool story of I think she, did she buy you? She bought yours first. Oh, a too smooth, and then you ended up having to buy her one after that. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, they they kind of it was a couple's uh, release exchange. <laughs> so, but they're both shooting silverbacks and shot them to come here and do that. I just I don't think people really realize how big of a step that is to you switch know, to a if, silverback. Well, and to come to an event like this where you're going to shoot with eight or ten people you don't know, you're going to be a little bit nervous, and you have this thing. But I really feel like taking your conscious thoughts off of you know I don't know who this person is. I'm a little bit nervous with this person. Like you don't really have the ability to think about that if you're really focusing on your shot process. And with that silverback, you know, holding the safety down, critical component, pulling back, getting anchored in, you know, I can tell people might've been a little bit nervous at first, but once they started just focusing on that and getting that shot to break, I was like so impressed. There, there's no better reward for a teacher than to see someone take the things that you put out there, um, apply them, you know, put them to real use, real live use. And uh, it's a massive step. I mean, that is steps that some of the best shooters I've ever shot against in the world w are afraid to do. They're literally like, they won't do it. They wanna have full control on when they make that trigger fire. And those people have highs and lows continually all career long, but I think this, small investment that you're making now your enjoyment of archery is going to be for as long as you want it to be because you know i don't think you're going to face the frustrations over the long haul yeah so what i was seeing though is people were especially on upper downs 
and their form, that kind of T form wasn't there, they were dropping their draw elbow. Oh, yeah. And so yep. then, then they start to shake. And you, know, and you had said something, not to me directly, but in one of your posts, and it's a little like knowledge bombs, but you said, you know, keep that elbow up, keep a little more tension on the index finger because yeah. the hook's in the proper position. And I still, if I, you know, get into a situation where it's not going off in that, seek, in that cadence, I'll think about that. But as soon as I told those folks, I'm like, yeah, just, you know, lift your elbow a little bit. You're dropping your elbow. You're dropping your elbow. Then all of a sudden, shots started breaking clean again. And I think that was a really big learning moment for a lot of folks with a silverback. Oh, yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, uh, you, you talk about your footing. I find when I'm on the extreme downhill, yep. that's the hardest time I have getting a rock solid base before I draw. Do you, is a wider stance better, narrow? What do you think? Honestly, I always try to keep my stance about the same. Ooh, he got a sick hat for asking a question. Now the questions are going to come. Uh, so, yeah, several of the targets that I set, um, I intentionally set them for a purpose of being able to teach at them. And the target two was w like that downhill on that, that bear. Um, the way I faced it, I faced it so like most people would fall completely out of the scoring wing just based on their footing. Because when your toes are down, it's just like with golf. A lot of times your shots will follow that. So if your toes are down, you know, toes downhill, a lot of times that ball will follow that same thing and you have to learn how to address that. So, I'm really um, a proponent of cutting in and trying to at least get my toes level first. The width is a little bit less important. Um, I like both my feet to have even height just so my hips and my shoulders can, can be level. Um, but I like my toes level and I like my feet level. When it comes to being, you know, there were some shots where I had to spread my legs further apart to clear branches and some where I could keep my feet directly under my shoulders, which I prefer. But I think from a technique point of view, I'm less worried about the width of the stance and more worried about, you know, doing what it takes to try to get your toes level. And this is something that's critical for bow hunters because a lot of times as a bull is approaching, you know, here, as a bull is approaching, you're trying to find your shooting lanes, but I've been been behind a lot of archers that just never really look down at their feet. And they start in one position because the bull's coming from here and they get square to that position. And then as the bull works its way all the way around, they're so focused on trying to find that shooting lane to where once they draw back and they're in that shooting lane, they're shooting so far across their body that they've brought their front arm or their front sleeve into play. You hit your sleeve, especially the broadhead. Everything goes downhill. Likewise, if the bull, you know, goes across your stance the opposite way, now you're shooting across your body. You almost have a very, very closed-off stance. And if you're shooting a tension release, you know, if you move this triangle where you're across your body here, you don't have the leverage to pull through a shot. So... Um, I just think it's critical that people, even in a hunting situation, pay attention to where can I get to where I'm going to have, you know, not only the cover I need, but proper, proper foot position as well. And if that bull's approaching, you know, take that time to, to try to get some stuff out of your way and dig in. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. Got a question in the back. Yeah, I'm just curious, uh, what was the moment or was there a moment when you decided you wanted to focus your energy on 
teaching rather than competing? That's a pretty good question. Um, you know, I'm thankful for all the different progressions through, I guess, through my archery career. You know, I was really lucky to work at an archery manufacturer, you know, at like 18 or 19 and started really being serious as a competitor during that time. But, you know, what a lot of people didn't see is back then at the ASA shoots on every Saturday, I was over at the Easton tent teaching kids how to shoot archery. During the summertime, I was going all through Iowa. At the time, I lived in Wisconsin, but Iowa had a lot of Christian youth camps. So I started a lot of Christian youth archery camps where I could just go and teach people. And I've just always really enjoyed doing that. I can't really say why, but for the longest time, I didn't have the platform to be able to do it at the level that I am now. So I really feel like from a competing point of view, um, I got to the point where people, you know, I felt like I had credibility where people would listen, but competition takes a lot of time. If you're going to, you know, especially once you turn pro, um, I was worried because I only had about three weeks to prepare for this. I really wanted 12 weeks, but just with schedule, it was three weeks. If I would have came here and shot this, you know, this underprepared um, against guys that are doing it every day, most of the day, um, I wouldn't have a chance. And it's, it's really hard to take that amount of time and apply to that because it would completely eliminate my ability to apply time to teaching. So, you know, I'm thankful for competing. I think competing has a place in archery, but I think there's a vast need for being able to get really good information. I remember being at a, a world competition in like 2005 and I walked up and there was a archery team from Cyprus and here's a team going to a world championship. There's three guys. All of their peep sites were whittled with a knife out of a coconut tree. With a, like, It looked like they had drilled a hole through it with another piece of wood. Like That's how bad it was. And you know, their cam was on one setting. One cam was on one position. One cam was on another. Uh, I looked at their arrows, and one of them had, you know, had cut his arrow off too far, so he actually took the cutoff piece and like put a pipe through it and glued it back on the front. And I thought, there really needs to be someone that can get this information out there to where the world of archery can grow. And for whatever reason, I just feel like that's a way better place for me than, than competing. How's it going? Hi, John. Thanks. Hey, um, first off, thank you for switching to um, education and everything that you've been providing. You've, you've taught me so much. Um, and I guess a couple, I have two questions. First, on, I'm using my hunting arrow, or hunting arrows, hunting bow, for this, and obviously with the field points. Um, and my furthest pin is 60 yards. And obviously yep. there were a lot longer shots than that. What processes or procedures would you recommend for going beyond your last pin? Well, you have to find a site that allows you to do it, you know, first off. Um, and I think those are becoming way more um, available now. Back when I competed, um, one of my hunting sites on my hunting bows, it's 20 years old. It's a Sherlock, and it has a four-pin hunting attachment that the original owner of Sherlock, his name was Steve Gibbs. 
um, he made this for me because I told him, I want to be able to have hunting a hunting apparatus with multiple pin, but I want to be able to shoot at target distances um, because my hunting bows were always just hybrids of a target bow. I try to really, the only things I really change is go from one pin to four pins. I change the diameter of my peep sight um, to match, you know, to match that, that hunting housing versus a, a smaller 29 millimeter scope. Um, and then I'm just putting longer veins on there a lot of times on the same type of arrows, um, and, you know, going hunting. So I feel like you need to be able to, you know, you need to be able to get your sight closer to your arrow to get to the longer yardages. If you only have four or five pins and it doesn't move past that, then you're limited. But if you do have the ability to move a sight, um, which I think is important, you know, there was a time, one of the things I love about this shoot is that it's acceptable now to have these ranges where they're very long. I didn't realize the scorecard said that the, that our range was 20 to 60 yards. I think our range averaged 67. Um, so I didn't know that. Otherwise, I'd have told him you need to change it. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that's cool is there was a time where I would go to a tournament like this and shoot targets at these distances, and, and people within our own community would argue that it wasn't ethical. And there was one thing that I learned from Chuck Adams years ago. I was at a seminar, and he was speaking, and I was speaking, and I told him, I said, what do you think about this whole um, you know, debate about how far is an ethical shot? And I think there's so many, so many parts of that question, but he told me something that was really important. He said, you know, I've come to find that my effective range as a hunter is only half the distance of what I'm completely comfortable being accurate in my backyard. So, you know, what I think is valuable is when you come here and you're making 100-yard shots, when people do have 60-yard pins, the further you shoot, you magnify mistakes. You know, one of the things that Silverback release does is it magnifies mistakes. Like, it tells you when you're creeping. It tells you if you're not following through. And even though it's hard to take it, when you do apply those and you're able to be more ethical as a hunter, which for me, target archery was only about being the most ethical, accurate bow hunter I could be. That's really what I wanted. So um, I think if you can find a site that allows you to get to those distances or if you you know, if you're not comfortable having those shots year round, like on an event like this, you could easily move that whole housing down with your four pins and have a 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 yard pin and shoot during the summer at those distances. Don't worry about the chip shots, you know, because in reality, something like this, you're probably not going to have a chip shot. But even if you did, Learning where to hold a 30-yard pin to hit it 20 yards is a valuable thing to know. The amount of people that were on targets with me and said, I only have 60, where should I hold? For me to be able to like look at their site and be like, you know what, I think you could hold here. One of the people in my very last group, uh, the girl could only shoot, I think, I forget how far it was, but she could only maybe shoot 60 yards max, and she shot a shot that, 100-yard elk and got it. So I was like looking at it, and I'm like, okay, you see above the royal tine up on the hill, there's a there's a green patch right up there of like some weeds. I'm like, put your 60-yard pin right there, and let's see if it falls in. But the reason I know that is because there were times where I had to understand what is the arc of an arrow like. So if you want to get to those longer distances and you only have four or five pins, 
you know, practice now at like 50 to 100 and just adjust your whole thing down, shoot from 50 to the 100 all during the off season, and then move it back to your 20 to 60 once hunting season rolls around. Andy, do you have anything, while he finds another question, do you have anything you want to add to, uh, I mean, you've been, you've been into archery two years now. Yeah, I think one thing for me was it was reinforcement of a lot of stuff. For me, the bubble, you've been with me on, like, the mouflon sheep where the bubble got me a little bit and I impacted left. But there was two things that I reinforced and took away. One was limbing into the terrain because there was a few times, like John was talking about, where my bubble was so off and I was starting to tell myself that there was no way I needed to bring it back as far as I was. <laughs> yeah. you know, I was and I was just staring at the bubble as my wrist kept twisting and twisting and twisting. And I finally was like, okay, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> and it felt like I was holding my bow sideways. Yep. But I just centered it and shot it. And then the other one is on the longer shot is opening my mouth a little bit so I don't have yep. a floating anchor. That one used to get me talk about that. substantially. And I find <laughs> that right. if I can just... Yeah, open my mouth a little bit on anything. Probably over 70 yards. It's a much more stable shooting position for me. Yeah, okay. So I'll just expand a little bit on these two things. One of the things that's critical when shooting on elevated shots like this is if you get in the habit of pointing your bow at the target and tipping your limb into the slope of the hill. Tip it into the hill. Watch your bubble. It's going to slide about three-quarters of the way across the line. And when you're in that position, that's when you want to draw anchor, look into your peep, center your sights, and you'll probably find by the time you do that, your bubbles probably slid about halfway back. And then once you're acquiring the target and you're aiming, you'll find that you can actually relax your hand even more and gravity is gonna pull that limb back to center. But the longer you hold, it'll start to fall. Um, so learning to draw into the hill a little bit will prevent you from having to do what Andy was saying is you draw back and you, you see your bubble over here. You don't realize, wow, that's quite a ways over. And then you just start pushing that thumb on that riser and pushing the thumb on the riser and pushing the thumb on the riser. And now, you know, if you shot your bow through paper with your thumb fully pressing on the top of the riser versus shooting with the neutral grip, you're going to have a completely different tear, right? So now you multiply that with, 100 yards plus a downdraft, guess what? You have no idea where that thing's going. Um, the next thing is I've had people ask questions like, you know, how come sometimes it looks like you're catching flies when you're shooting? Um, so whenever you're shooting longer distance, your sight obviously at 20 yards is going to be towards the top of your rail. And then once you get all the way down to 100, it's at the bottom of your rail. And depending on your speed, that could be, a pretty good distance or a fairly small distance. But what you'll find is if you are someone who shoots a lot at 20, 30, 40 yards, you're going to adjust your peep height to where you feel really comfortable at those distances. But once you start bringing that slide way down to hit those bottom distances, you're going to find that you're like almost trying to look, you know, look down through that peep to see your sight that's lower on the rail. And a lot of people find that your anchor at that point is kind of floating because you're kind of bringing that peep down a little bit to see through it better to see that 100-yard mark. So what I do is when I'm shooting 20 yards, my jaw is tight. You know, I'm tight jaw, my anchor's higher, you know, my pins is at the top of its rail. And then as I start to need to shoot where my pin is lower on that sight, I'll slowly 
drop my jaw just a little bit so that I can maintain my anchor position that I like on my jaw, but also be able to accept that peep being in a position to where I can see that longer distance and still be comfortable. Got a question out here? Yeah. Um, any other advice that you have for preparing to shoot at higher elevations? Because I know for our groups, like the first few shots, everyone was just trying to figure out, okay, am I, am I a little bit too slow? Am I a little bit too fast? So any advice? And then also, too, your advice on the rem oil. Um, I shot the locals course on Thursday, got some, got some rem oil that night, and then on Friday it, it shot much better. So any advice preparing for a higher elevation? Uh, okay, yeah, we'll touch on that. For, for the silverback release or really any handheld release, even your hunting site when you go from extreme air conditioning out to really warm weather you know your your accessories start to condensate and when that happens the movement of your site the swelling of bushings you know um, and even on like a hardened part like the internals of a release you know once that condensation happens multiple times if it's not fully drying out it's going to start to have a little bit of corrosion so being able to, you know, utilize one drop of rim oil in those situations is is really really important. Um, what was the first part of that question? Elevation. Oh, altitude. for yeah, preparing for um, altitude. What? So there's a few things that I posted the other day that I, you know, people ask the same question. There's a couple things here that are difficult. One, you know. I never show up at a big event like this that's challenging because this is a very challenging course. You know, I can honestly say when I set that course, I kind of shot it a little bit, and I definitely didn't come out of the gate pounding 10 rings. You know, that it took me a little bit to get used to shooting like that. So what gets hard is yesterday when we were shooting and I was with some of those first groups, people were like, well, I'm not quite hitting where I'm where I should be, and you know maybe I should have changed my you know changed my sight scale because I'm I'm a little bit higher now, you know I'm at a different altitude, and I kind of felt like saying, hey man, you're shooting with seven people you don't know, you're tremoring, like I'm looking at you tremor, so in that situation you kind of have to go to the Barklow mentality of you know let the user error like let it settle a little bit. Um, because I could have easily rushed to conclusions and started moving things on my own setup. And in reality, when I shot it with everyone for real, um, and I was 100% focused and kind of stretched out, I had a completely different outcome. And I never changed anything. I just kind of made sure my technique was right. You know, there was a few shots when I shot the first day with Evan. We went out and had some fun. There's a few shots where I hit low, and all of a sudden I started thinking like, you know, I saw my peep sight just falling out of the bottom of my scope. You know, all of a sudden I started seeing this gap under my level and it just got, mm. I could see more of a gap, more of a gap, more of a gap, shot. Well, that's no different than sliding your pin up and up and up and up and up. So just really focusing on the techniques of staying in the pocket tight, making sure that front sight, rear sight um, alignment was perfect. You know, that stuff's really critical. The other thing is, I warned people, you know, when you come to certain places to practice, you're at the mercy of where their practice range is. So I warned people, don't like go and have to make a 20 degree shot to check your 100 yard mark and start moving things because you're not quite hitting 
where you should be at 100 yards when the practice range is an uphill shot like this. I always, in these situations, I always carry a block target with me and I'll try to find someplace flat to actually check those scales rather than try to change a scale based on shooting. This practice range is technical. You go over here and shoot the 100, the 90 yard shots and it's entirely continually sloping uphill the whole way. That would be a really tough place to be able to get accurate marks. And I guess the next thing is, um, I know a lot of people are buying sights right now with extension bars and they're getting in the habits of fully extending those out because they like how they look. If you want to be able to be able to achieve longer distance shots and have less room for error on those long distance shots, you actually want to have that sight closer to the bow because your pin gaps will start to decrease uh, much, much quicker. So if you have a sight for example, if you have a site and it's extended out 12 inches, that scale from 20 to 100, you could bring that thing in eight inches and you could almost save yourself eight yards on a scale. So you'd be able to shoot eight yards further or you know, you'd be able to make a one yard, um, you know, a one yard error and still be able to stay within those kill rings. So for my personal bow, you'll notice I'm halfway into my bow from where my sight is capable of doing it. And it's because that's where I need to be so that I can get to 100 yards and my arrow still clear that scope. Got one more question? Uh, first off, thanks for the school knock. It's taught me lots. Um, I got an arrow question. Uh, this year I shoot Eastern Axis. And uh, I'm switching from expandables to fixed blade for yep. elk season. And uh, right now I'm using X shield veins, like really low profile, yep. like especially for these long shots. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you recommend for like hunting season so that it's with a high FOC for steering that arrow? I, this is a good question for Evan, really. Yeah. Yeah, Evan. <laughs> I'll tell you what, P for plenty. I think you just double them up. I'm joking. I, we're, we, we were having this conversation about javelin missiles earlier, and we were making jokes about just putting them all down the arrow. Uh, but, yeah, John, go ahead. Hey, I think as long as, you, as long as you put time behind any setup, the actual setup that you want to take to the field, you'll answer those own questions better than I can. Um, there's times where I've had short veins that work in a three fletch configuration really awesome with you know say broadhead a and then when i switch to broadhead b it's all of a sudden like not only does it not like this vein it doesn't care if i have three four five six ten doesn't matter with that particular profile it just doesn't like it but then i can go back to a different profile in a three and it works just fine so I just challenge people all the time. You know, we, we sell sample packs of veins just because I feel like the best thing you can do is if you're like, hey, this is the broadhead. I love this broadhead. This is the broadhead I want to use. This is the arrow I want to use. This is how much front weight I want to use. I think at that point you need to take that vein and then take a slightly different vein and maybe add one vein to that first, con you know, and just shoot them down range. And one of the things that I look for is I really look for a combination that allows me to have my pins closest to the alignment of my arrow shaft. 
Because there's been times where I've had a certain configuration that shoots really great, but it's making me keep my pins way outside of my arrow. And for me, that kind of wigs me out. You know, it just tells me that it's kind of tracking in a, in a wacky manner. So I like a combination that lets me keep all my alignment down the pipe, as I refer to it. But um, I don't think there's like a standard answer for this. You know, one of the things that I've said for a long time is anytime you change anything, you change everything. I said that to Barklow a long time ago. And when, when you were over about two weeks ago, um, you said, you're like, man, I was doing this and this. And all of a sudden I thought, dang it, you know, that's 100% true. But we were talking stabilizers and just changing a stabilizer length or a weight yep. is changing point of impact. Yep. 100%. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, 100%. We need that on a T-shirt. Anytime you change anything, you change anything. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I don't have a perfect answer for you. My wife shoots a different combination than my son. I shoot a different combination than them. When I build custom bows for people, I've built Evan two bows. Both bows are different. I've built Andy two bows. Both of those are slightly different for arrow builds. Barklow, yeah. you just went through a long journey of doing that exact same thing and yeah. tell them what you found i don't know what did i find um i actually i went way way deep down a rabbit hole on hill testing shocker um yeah um probably more than i'd recommend any other sane person to do but to kind of give you a little information but not answer your question um i had <laughs> perfect i started with 11 11 different combinations of arrows um, that was arrows, that was veins, that was three and four fletch, that was two-degree offset, just, that was helical. It's, it's, it's disgusting. What's wrong you with you? Yeah, I, I, clearly I have way too much time on my hands. Um, and uh, Which and is so, why Sika has really good product. And so once I narrowed that, that down to, to, five, to five arrows, arrow combinations, I, I took it as – I haven't told you this, actually, but I took it a step farther. I put expandables on those arrows – and I was testing at 60 yards, so then I shot them all at 60, and I charted the whole thing out. And then I went one step further, and I shot them all with fixed blade. And it was really obvious once I had done all of that, there were actually two arrow combinations with veins that, that were clearly outperforming everyone else. Um, and then it was really up to me to decide, okay, if I want to shoot elk, what vein or what arrow combination do I feel best uh, at? And, uh, and so that's where I kind of ended up. I, I don't think you have to go that far. I, I just wanted to see where I could take it. Don't go that far. Yeah, I just wanted to see where I could take it. But, <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but once I added the broadheads, because clearly I wanted a hunting setup, that's really what separated the wheat from the chaff, and, and it was clear to me. I, I probably could have shot five arrow combinations for this event um, that were all within, you know, when you get to two-tenths of an inch at 60 yards, I mean... You know, unless I'm using a shooting machine, it's... But, uh, but once I put broadheads on there, it was clear to me um, what, you know, what, what was going to work best. Evan, your first bow hunt was in April? Was that when we went? Yeah, we went to Oklahoma. Or March. Hogwarts. Yeah. Hogwarts. Yep. yep. So how much, coming from your entire background, um, how much did that experience change your whole lifestyle? Uh, well, I mean, I've shot a substantial amount, mainly rifle, pistol, my entire adult life. Uh, I've shot competitively, I've shot professionally in the tactical circumstances. Uh, you know, archery 
and specifically, you know, hunting, it's, it's completely different. Uh, when I say that, there are things that translate over because marksmanship is marksmanship. You yeah. know, you, it's consistency, it's replicating the same thing every time, it's getting your, your weights and everything measured. It, it's, there are a lot of things that translate. Um, and it'll make you a good marksman, regardless of whether it's archery or rifle shooting and pistol shooting. Uh, I think one thing that allowed me to do, and probably makes me a better rifle shooter too, is it allowed me to go back and really concentrate wholeheartedly on individual fundamentals. Yeah. Um, and that I can pull it across both into rifle, pistol, archery, and, and you know, I'm, I call myself a uh, a velocity or projectile enthusiast now, so I don't discriminate between one or the other. I shoot. I like that everything. Um, yeah, because I still like shooting paper clips across the room. Like exactly. I can totally get into that. Yeah. Yep. Like it could be a golf ball. It doesn't matter to yeah. me. So yep. I think it just allows me to up my marksmanship, regardless of what I'm shooting, because I'm concentrating on fundamentals. Um, and then hunting specifically, what we were doing. It, I was concentrated a lot more on uh, smaller things on the stocking and the wind and things like that that really I wasn't necessarily that concerned with before, yep. especially shooting at distance with high caliber rifle. You're not as concerned with those things. Andy, got anything before we wrap up? Hunting? I just am constantly baffled by how little I know. Yes. Yeah, that was that was actually something that was pretty interesting for me this past year. Before our Montana hunt, I told you, I said, this is going to be the first time where you're just going to have to go because we got a limited time. Me, you, and Barclow all had tags. I'm like, you cool going your – I got to go my way. You're going to go your way. Barclow's going to go your way. And then I think by day two, you're like, I actually don't care if I fill my tag. I'm just going to tag along. I was just listening to you bugle, and I figured my best strategy would be to walk towards that <laughs> and then just hang out with you. <laughs> So that's what I did. Yeah, it. Uh, you have learned with you, how to call a little bit. The first, I, re, I still I remember the series coming out on DVD. It's not a big deal. You can get it downloaded <laughs> as well. I, re, I still remember the first time you tried blowing an elk call. It was, I'm sure it was, you do. We you were like FaceTiming. It <laughs> it's like a sound that my ears can't unhear. It was so bad. It was fine. <laughs> no, it, yeah, hunting with you is interesting. Uh, obviously, you have a horseshoe in your back pocket at sometimes. Animals seem to be attracted to you, whereas I do not. When I'm off by myself, they seem to be the I'm a magnet, the reverse polarization. They're going <laughs> the other direction. But, yeah, it, hunting next to you for two years and then all of a sudden trying to do those things by myself is a stark difference for sure. And, uh, yeah, I'm constantly baffled by how little I know, and I just – uh, my theory is I'm just trying to manage the number of mistakes that I make and slowly make less. Yeah. If there's one thing I'll end with, I'll just tell everyone out there, whether it's bow hunting for the first time or shooting a bow for the first time or doing your first, you know, going on your first elk hunt or something, you know, try to really find what the key fundamentals are. You know, they talked a little bit about calling earlier. I don't know half of those calls, um, all I know is I try to be able to do one bugle right. I try to be able to do one cow call right. And I try to just focus on doing it good enough to where that it is correct. And when it came to, to hunting, it was the same way. 
Um, I just try to focus on picking a few key fundamentals and just drilling them until I really feel like those are second nature. And honestly, more times than not, I don't, I find that I really don't have to complicate things in relation, you know, in the archery or the bow hunting world. If you just a hundred percent be committed to consistency of putting in time to the basics. Um, sometimes I feel weird teaching where I, where I know I go somewhere and I'm saying the same thing that I talked about on a podcast, but I just don't feel like everyone can hear it enough. You don't really have to overcomplicate, you know, archery, uh, you know, regardless of that shot, you know, that, that hundred yard shot, if, if I was able to just put you in a 20 yard range and teach you what you need to do to hit that bullseye at 20 yards, if, I could have you doing that same thing in some kind of a virtual reality chamber to where once the arrow left the bow, you realize you were actually aiming at a hundred yard target through the Aspens bedded down at the bottom of a hill. And then you just see that arrow tick tock right into that 12 ring. You just realize the shot execution is the same. That's all you need is the exact same thing, regardless of the distance. And if you can apply that, you're going to be a way better hunter you guys are around we're going to be podcasting with another group of guys at 3 30 today so please come by thanks everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com